Welcome to All Things Eerie, a collection of spooky tales brought to you by the Nashville Public Library. Here we welcome the unwelcome, try to settle the unsettling, and play host to the undeparted, the undead, and shall we say, the unreasonable. As we enter the land of shadows and uncertainty, the twilight of your imagination, relax while we pull aside the curtain. Indeed, lift the veil of the secret and unknown. And don't look around too much. It's bad for the nerves. Pull your blanket tight around you and make way for this evening's selection. Welcome back to All Things Eerie and Part 3 of Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. The charismatic and sophisticated vampire of modern fiction was born in 1819 with the publication of The Vampire by the English writer John Polidori. The story was highly successful and perhaps the most influential vampire work of the early 19th century. Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula is remembered as the quintessential vampire novel and provided the basis of the modern vampire legend, even though it was published after fellow Irish author Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's 1872 novel Carmilla. The success of this book spawned a distinctive vampire genre, still popular in the 21st century through books, films, television shows, even opera and video games. The vampire has since become a dominant figure in the horror genre. In this evening's episodes, we see an old picture being delivered to the Schloss, a picture dating back many years which bears a remarkable likeness to Carmilla. The portrait is of a woman named Mirkala, the Countess of Karnstein, whose family's ruins are not far from the Schloss. Our protagonist continues to be beset by frightening, dark dreams and a strange illness comprised of fatigue and strange and vague sensations. And now, turn down the lights and join us for Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. Part 3, Chapters 5 through 8. Chapter 5, A Wonderful Likeness This evening there arrived from Gratz, the grave, dark-faced son of the picture-cleaner, with a horse and cart laden with two large packing cases, having many pictures in each. It was a journey of ten leagues, and whenever a messenger arrived at the Schloss from our little capital of Gratz, we used to crowd about him in the hall to hear the news. This arrival created in our secluded quarters quite a sensation. The cases remained in the hall, and the messenger was taken charge of by the servants till he had eaten his supper. Then, with assistance and armed with a hammer, ripping chisel and turnscrew, he met us in the hall where we had assembled to witness the unpacking of the cases. Carmilla sat looking listlessly on, while one after the other the old pictures, nearly all portraits which had undergone the process of renovation, were brought to light. My mother was of an old Hungarian family, and most of these pictures, which were about to be restored to their places, had come to us through her. My father had a list in his hand, from which he read as the artist rummaged out the corresponding numbers. I don't know that the pictures were very good, but they were undoubtedly very old, and some of them very curious also. 
They had, for the most part, the merit of being now seen by me, I may say, for the first time, for the smoke and dust of time had all but obliterated them. There is a picture that I have not seen yet, said my father. In one corner at the top of it is the name, as well as I could read, Marcia Karnstein, and the date, 1698, and I am curious to see how it has turned out. I remembered it. It was a small picture, about a foot and a half high and nearly square, without a frame, but it was so blackened by age that I could not make it out. The artist now produced it, with evident pride. It was quite beautiful. It was startling. It seemed to live. It was the effigy of Carmilla. Carmilla, dear, here is an absolute miracle. Here you are, living, smiling, ready to speak, in this picture. Isn't it beautiful, Papa? And see, even the little mole on her throat. My father laughed and said, Certainly it is a wonderful likeness. But he looked away, and to my surprise seemed but little struck by it and went on talking to the picture-cleaner, who was also something of an artist, and discoursed with intelligence about the portraits or other works which his art had just brought into light and color, while I was more and more lost in wonder the more I looked at the picture. "'Will you let me hang this picture in my room, Papa?' I asked. "'Certainly, dear,' said he, smiling. "'I'm very glad you think it's so like. It must be prettier even than I thought it, if it is.' The young lady did not acknowledge this pretty speech, did not seem to hear it. She was leaning back in her seat, her fine eyes under their long lashes gazing on me in contemplation, and she smiled in a kind of rapture. And now you can read quite plainly the name that is written in the corner. It is not Marcia. It looks as if it was done in gold. The name is Mircalla, Countess Karnstein and this is a little coronet over and underneath, A.D. 1698. I am descended from the Karnsteins, that is, Mama was. Ah, said the lady languidly, so am I, I think, a very long descent, very ancient. Are there any Karnsteins living now? None who bear the name, I believe. The family were ruined. I believe in some civil wars long ago, but the ruins of the castle are only about three miles away. How interesting, she said languidly. But see what beautiful moonlight. She glanced through the hall door, which stood a little open. Suppose you take a little ramble round the court and look down at the road and river. It is so like the night you came to us, I said. She sighed, smiling. She rose, and each with her arm about the other's waist, we walked out upon the pavement. In silence, slowly we walked down to the drawbridge where the beautiful landscape opened before us. And so you were thinking of the night I came here? She almost whispered. Are you glad I came? Delighted, dear Carmilla, I answered. And you asked for the picture you think like me, to hang in your room she murmured with a sigh as she drew her arm closer about my waist and let her pretty head sink upon my shoulder. "'How romantic you are, Carmilla,' I said. "'Whenever you tell me your story, it will be made up chiefly of some one great romance.' 
She kissed me silently. I am sure, Carmilla, you have been in love, that there is at this moment an affair of the heart going on. I have been in love with no one, and never shall, she whispered, unless it should be with you. How beautiful she looked in the moonlight. Shy and strange was the look with which she quickly hid her face in my neck and hair, with tumultuous sighs that seemed almost to sob, and pressed in mine a hand that trembled. Her soft cheek was glowing against mine. Darling, darling, she murmured, I live in you, and you would die for me. I love you so. I started from her. She was gazing on me with eyes from which all fire, all meaning had flown, and a face colorless and apathetic. Is there a chill in the air, dear? she said drowsily. I almost shiver. Have I been dreaming? Let us come in. Come, come, come in. You look ill, Carmilla, a little faint. You certainly must take some wine, I said. Yes, I will. I'm better now. I shall be quite well in a few minutes. Yes, do give me a little wine, answered Carmilla as we approached the door. Let us look again for a moment. It is the last time, perhaps, I shall see the moonlight with you. How do you feel now, dear Carmilla? Are you really better? I asked. I was beginning to take alarm, lest she should have been stricken with the strange epidemic that they said had invaded the country about us. Papa would be grieved beyond measure, I added, if he thought you were ever so little ill without immediately letting us know. We have a very skillful doctor near us, the physician who was with Papa today. I'm sure he is. I know how kind you all are, but, dear child, I am quite well again. There is nothing ever wrong with me but a little weakness. People say I am languid. I am incapable of exertion. I can scarcely walk as far as a child of three years old, and every now and then the little strength I have falters, and I become as you have just seen me. But after all, I am very easily set up again. In a moment I am perfectly myself. See how I have recovered. So indeed she had, and she and I talked a great deal, and very animated she was, and the remainder of that evening passed without any recurrence of what I called her infatuations. I mean her crazy talk and looks, which embarrassed and even frightened me. But there occurred that night an event which gave my thoughts quite a new turn, and seemed to startle even Carmilla's languid nature into momentary energy. Chapter 6 A Very Strange Agony When we got into the drawing-room, and had sat down to our coffee and chocolate, although Carmilla did not take any, she seemed quite herself again and Madame and Mademoiselle de La Fontaine joined us and made a little card party, in the course of which Papa came in for what he called his dish of tea. When the game was over, he sat down beside Carmilla on the sofa and asked her, a little anxiously, whether she had heard from her mother since her arrival. She answered, no. He then asked whether she knew where a letter would reach her at present. I cannot tell, she answered ambiguously, but I have been thinking of leaving you. 
You have been already too hospitable and too kind to me. I have given you an infinity of trouble, and I should wish to take a carriage tomorrow and post in pursuit of her. I know where I shall ultimately find her, although I dare not yet tell you. But you must not dream of any such thing, exclaimed my father, to my great relief. We can't afford to lose you so, and I won't consent to your leaving us except under the care of your mother, who was so good as to consent to your remaining with us till she should herself return. I should be quite happy if I knew that you heard from her, but this evening the accounts of the progress of the mysterious disease that has invaded our neighborhood grow even more alarming. And my beautiful guest, I do feel the responsibility, unaided by advice from your mother, very much. But I shall do my best, and one thing is certain, that you must not think of leaving us without her distinct direction to that effect. We should suffer too much in parting from you to consent to it easily. Thank you, sir, a thousand times for your hospitality, she answered, smiling bashfully. You have all been too kind to me. I have seldom been so happy in all my life before as in your beautiful chateau, under your care, and in the society of your dear daughter. So he gallantly, in his old-fashioned way, kissed her hand, smiling and pleased at her little speech. I accompanied Carmilla as usual to her room, and sat and chatted with her while she was preparing for bed. "'Do you think,' I said at length, "'that you will ever confide fully in me?' She turned round smiling, but made no answer, only continued to smile on me. "'You won't answer that?' I said. "'You can't answer pleasantly? I ought not to have asked you.' You were quite right to ask me that, or anything. You do not know how dear you are to me, or you would not think any confidence too great to look for. But I am under vows, no none half so awfully, and I dare not tell my story yet, even to you. The time is very near when you shall know everything. You will think me cruel, very selfish, but love is always selfish. The more ardent, the more selfish." How jealous I am you cannot know. You must come with me, loving me, to death, or else hate me and still come with me, and hating me through death and after. There is no such word as indifference in my apathetic nature. Now, Carmilla, you are going to talk your wild nonsense again, I said hastily. Not I, silly little fool as I am, and full of whims and fancies, for your sake I'll talk like a sage. Were you ever at a ball? No, how you do run on. What is it like? How charming it must be. I almost forget. It is years ago. I laughed. You are not so old. Your first ball can hardly be forgotten yet. I remember everything about it. With an effort, I see it all as divers see what is going on above them through a medium, dense, rippling but transparent. There occurred that night what has confused the picture and made its colors faint. I was all but assassinated in my bed, wounded here, she touched her breast, and never was the same since. Were you near dying? Yes, very. A cruel love, strange love, that would have taken my life. Love will have its sacrifices. No sacrifice without blood. 
Let us go to sleep now. I feel so lazy. How can I get up just now and lock my door? She was lying with her tiny hands buried in her rich, wavy hair, under her cheek, her little head upon the pillow, and her glittering eyes followed me wherever I moved, with a kind of shy smile that I could not decipher. I bid her good night and crept from the room with an uncomfortable sensation. I often wondered whether our pretty guest ever said her prayers. I certainly had never seen her upon her knees. In the morning she never came down until long after our family prayers were over, and at night she never left the drawing-room to attend our brief evening prayers in the hall. If it had not been that it had casually come out in one of our careless talks that she had been baptized, I should have doubted her being a Christian. Religion was a subject on which I had never heard her speak a word. If I had known the world better, this particular neglect or antipathy would not have so much surprised me. The precautions of nervous people are infectious, and persons of a like temperament are pretty sure, after a time, to imitate them. I had adopted Carmilla's habit of locking her bedroom door, having taken into my head all her whimsical alarms about midnight invaders and prowling assassins. I had also opted her precaution of making a brief search through her room to satisfy herself that no lurking assassin or robber was ensconced. These wise measures taken, I got into my bed and fell asleep. A light was burning in my room. This was an old habit, a very early date, and which nothing could have tempted me to dispense with. Thus fortified, I might take my rest in peace. But dreams come through stone walls, light up dark rooms, or darken light ones, and their persons make their exits and their entrances as they please, and laugh at locksmiths. I had a dream that night that was the beginning of a very strange agony. I cannot call it a nightmare, for I was quite conscious of being asleep. But I was equally conscious of being in my room and lying in the bed precisely as I actually was. I saw, or fancied I saw, the room and its furniture just as I had seen it last, except that it was very dark, and I saw something moving round the foot of the bed, which at first I could not accurately distinguish. But I soon saw that it was a sooty black animal that resembled a monstrous cat. It appeared to me about four or five feet long, for it measured fully the length of the hearthrug as it passed over it and it continued toing and froing with the lithe, sinister restlessness of a beast in a cage. I could not cry out, although, as you may suppose, I was terrified. Its pace was growing faster, and the room rapidly darker and darker, and at length so dark that I could no longer see anything of it but its eyes. I felt it spring lightly on the bed, the two broad eyes approached my face, and suddenly I felt a stinging pain as if two large needles darted, an inch or two apart, deep into my breast. I waked with a scream. The room was lighted by the candle that burnt there all through the night, and I saw a female figure standing at the foot of the bed, a little at the right side. It was in a dark, loose dress, and its hair was down and covered its shoulders. A block of stone could not have been more still. There was not the slightest stir of respiration. As I stared at it, the figure appeared to have changed its place, 
and was now nearer the door. Then, close to it, the door opened, and it passed out. I was now relieved and able to breathe and move. My first thought was that Carmilla had been playing me a trick, and that I had forgotten to secure my door. I hastened to it, and found it locked as usual on the inside. I was afraid to open it. I was horrified. I sprang into my bed and covered my head up in the bedclothes, and lay there more dead than alive till morning. Chapter 7 Descending It would be vain my attempting to tell you the horror with which, even now, I recall the occurrence of that night. It was no such transitory terror as a dream leaves behind it. It seemed to deepen by time, and communicated itself to the room and the very furniture that had encompassed the apparition. I could not bear next day to be alone for a moment. I should have told Papa, but for two opposite reasons. At one time I thought he would laugh at my story, and I could not bear its being treated as a jest. And at another I thought he might fancy that I had been attacked by the mysterious complaint which had invaded our neighborhood. I had myself no misgiving of this kind, and as he had been rather an invalid for some time, I was afraid of alarming him. I was comfortable enough with my good-natured companions, Madame Perrodon and the vivacious Mademoiselle Lafontaine. They both perceived that I was out of spirits and nervous, and at length I told them what lay so heavy at my heart. Mademoiselle laughed, but I fancied that Madame Perrodon looked anxious. "'By the by,' said Mademoiselle, laughing, "'the long lime-tree walk behind Carmilla's bedroom window is haunted.' "'Nonsense!' exclaimed Madame, who probably thought the theme rather inopportune. "'And who tells that story, my dear?' "'Martin says that he came up twice when the old yard gate was being repaired, before sunrise, "'and twice saw the same female figure walking down the lime-tree avenue.' "'So he well might, as long as there are cows to milk in the river fields,' said Madame. "'I dare say. But Martin chooses to be frightened, and never did I see fool more frightened.' "'You must not say a word about it to Carmilla, because she can see down that walk from her room window,' I interposed, "'and she is, if possible, a greater coward than I.' "'Carmilla came down rather later than usual that day.' I was so frightened last night, she said, so soon as we were together, and I am sure I should have seen something dreadful if it had not been for that charm I bought from the poor little hunchback whom I called such hard names. I had a dream of something black coming round my bed, and I awoke in a perfect horror, and I really thought, for some seconds, I saw a dark figure near the chimney-piece. But I felt under my pillow for my charm, and the moment my fingers touched it, the figure disappeared, and I felt quite certain, only that I had it by me, that something frightful would have made its appearance, and perhaps throttled me, as it did those poor people we heard of. Well, listen to me, I began, and recounted my adventure, at the recital of which she appeared horrified. And had you the charm near you? she asked earnestly. No, I had dropped it into a china vase in the drawing room. "'but I shall certainly take it with me tonight, "'as you have so much faith in it. "'At this distance of time I cannot tell you, "'or even understand, 
how I overcame my horror so effectually as to lie alone in my room that night. I remember distinctly that I pinned the charm to my pillow. I fell asleep almost immediately and slept even more soundly than usual all night. Next night I passed as well. My sleep was delightfully deep and dreamless. But I wakened with a sense of lassitude and melancholy, which, however, did not exceed a degree that was almost luxurious. "'Well, I told you so,' said Carmilla, when I described my quiet sleep. "'I had such delightful sleep myself last night, I pinned the charm to the breast of my nightdress. It was too far away the night before. I am quite sure it was all fancy, except the dreams. I used to think that evil spirits made dreams.' but our doctor told me it is no such thing, only a fever passing by, or some other malady, as they often do, he said, knocks at the door, and not being able to get in, passes on with that alarm. And what do you think the charm is? said I. It has been fumigated or immersed in some drug, and is an antidote against the malaria, she answered. Then it acts only on the body. Certainly. You don't suppose that evil spirits are frightened by bits of ribbon or the perfumes of a druggist's shop? No, these complaints, wandering in the air, begin by trying the nerves, and so infect the brain. But before they can seize upon you, the antidote repels them. That, I am sure, is what the charm has done for us. It is nothing magical. It is simply natural." I should have been happier if I could have quite agreed with Carmilla, but I did my best, and the impression was a little losing its force. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude, and a languor weighed upon me all day. I felt myself a changed girl. A strange melancholy was stealing over me, a melancholy that I could not have interrupted. Dim thoughts of death began to open, and an idea that I was slowly sinking took gentle and somehow not unwelcome possession of me. If it was sad, the tone of mind which this induced was also sweet. Whatever it might be, my soul acquiesced in it. I would not admit that I was ill. I would not consent to tell my papa or to have the doctor sent for. Carmilla became more devoted to me than ever, and her strange paroxysms of languid adoration more frequent. She used to gloat on me with increasing ardor the more my strength and spirits waned. This always shocked me like a momentary glare of insanity. Without knowing it, I was now in a pretty advanced stage of the strangest illness under which mortal had ever suffered. There was an unaccountable fascination in its earlier symptoms that more than reconciled me to the incapacitating effect of that stage of the malady. This fascination increased for a time, until it reached a certain point, when gradually a sense of the horrible mingled itself with it, deepening, as you shall hear, until it discolored and perverted the whole state of my life. The first change I experienced was rather agreeable. It was very near the turning point from which began the descent of Avernus. Certain vague and strange sensations visited me in my sleep. The prevailing one was of that pleasant, peculiar, cold thrill which we feel in bathing when we move against the current of a river. 
This was soon accompanied by dreams that seemed interminable and were so vague that I could never recollect their scenery and persons or any one connected portion of their action. But they left an awful impression and a sense of exhaustion as if I had passed through a long period of great mental exertion and danger. After all these dreams, there remained on waking a remembrance of having been in a place very nearly dark, and of having spoken to people whom I could not see, and especially of one clear voice, of a female's, very deep, that spoke as if at a distance, slowly, and producing always the same sensation of indescribable solemnity and fear. Sometimes there came a sensation as if a hand was drawn softly along my cheek and neck, Sometimes it was as if warm lips kissed me, and longer and longer and more lovingly as they reached my throat, but there the caress fixed itself. My heart beat faster, my breathing rose and fell rapidly and full-drawn. A sobbing that rose into a sense of strangulation supervened and turned into a dreadful convulsion in which my senses left me and I became unconscious. It was now three weeks since the commencement of this unaccountable state. My sufferings had, during the last week, told upon my appearance. I had grown pale, my eyes were dilated and darkened underneath, and the languor which I had long felt began to display itself in my countenance. My father asked me often whether I was ill, but with an obstinacy which now seems to me unaccountable, I persisted in assuring him that I was quite well. In a sense, this was true. I had no pain. I could complain of no bodily derangement. My complaint seemed to be one of the imagination or the nerves, and horrible as my sufferings were, I kept them, with a morbid reserve, very nearly to myself. It could not be that terrible complaint which the peasants called the vampire, for I had now been suffering for three weeks, and they were seldom ill for much more than three days, when death put an end to their miseries. Carmilla complained of dreams and feverish sensations, but by no means of so alarming a kind as mine. I say that mine were extremely alarming. Had I been capable of comprehending my condition, I would have invoked aid and advice on my knees. The narcotic of an unsuspected influence was acting upon me, and my perceptions were benumbed. I am going to tell you now of a dream that led immediately to an odd discovery. One night, instead of the voice I was accustomed to hear in the dark, I heard one, sweet and tender, and at the same time terrible, which said, Your mother warns you to beware of the assassin." and at the same time a light unexpectedly sprang up, and I saw Carmilla standing near the foot of my bed in her white nightdress, bathed from her chin to her feet in one great stain of blood. I wakened with a shriek, possessed with the one idea that Carmilla was being murdered. I remembered springing from my bed, and my next recollection is that of standing on the lobby, crying for help. Madame and Mademoiselle came scurrying out of their rooms in alarm. A lamp burned always on the lobby, and seeing me, they soon learned the cause of my terror. I insisted on our knocking at Carmilla's door. Our knocking was unanswered. 
It soon became a pounding and an uproar. We shrieked her name, but all was in vain. We all grew frightened, for the door was locked. We hurried back in panic to my room. There we rang the bell long and furiously. If my father's room had been at that side of the house, we would have called him up at once to our aid. But alas, he was quite out of hearing, and to reach him involved an excursion for which none of us had courage. Servants, however, soon came running up the stairs. I had got on my dressing gown and slippers meanwhile, and my companions were already similarly furnished. Recognizing the voices of the servants on the lobby, we sallied out together, and having renewed as fruitlessly our summons at Carmilla's door, I ordered the men to force the lock. They did so, and we stood holding our lights aloft in the doorway, and so stared into the room. We called her by name, but there was still no reply. We looked round the room. Everything was undisturbed. It was exactly in the state in which I had left it on bidding her good night. But Carmilla was gone. Chapter 8 Search At the sight of the room, perfectly undisturbed except for our violent entrance, we began to cool a little and soon recovered our senses sufficiently to dismiss the men. It had struck Mademoiselle that possibly Carmilla had been wakened by the uproar at her door, and in her first panic had jumped from her bed and hid herself in a press or behind a curtain, from which she could not, of course, emerge until the major-domo and his myrmidons had withdrawn. We now recommenced our search, and began to call her name again. It was all to no purpose— our perplexity and agitation increased. We examined the windows, but they were secured. I implored of Carmilla, if she had concealed herself, to play this cruel trick no longer, to come out and to end our anxieties. It was all useless. I was by this time convinced that she was not in the room, nor in the dressing-room, the door of which was still locked on this side. She could not have passed it. I was utterly puzzled. Had Carmilla discovered one of those secret passages which the old housekeeper said were known to exist in the Schloss, although the tradition of their exact situation had been lost? A little time would, no doubt, explain all, utterly perplexed as, for the present, we were. It was past four o'clock, and I preferred passing the remaining hours of darkness in Madame's room. Daylight brought no solution of the difficulty. The whole household, with my father at its head, was in a state of agitation next morning. Every part of the chateau was searched. The grounds were explored. No trace of the missing lady could be discovered. The stream was about to be dragged. My father was in distraction. What a tale to have to tell the poor girl's mother on her return. I, too, was almost beside myself, though my grief was quite of a different kind. The morning was passed in alarm and excitement. It was now one o'clock, and still no tidings. I ran up to Carmilla's room and found her standing at her dressing-table. I was astounded. I could not believe my eyes. She beckoned me to her with her pretty finger, in silence. Her face expressed extreme fear. I ran to her in an ecstasy of joy. I kissed and embraced her again and again. I ran to the bell and rang it vehemently to bring others to the spot who might at once relieve my father's anxiety. 
Dear Carmela, what has become of you all this time? We have been in agonies of anxiety about you, I exclaimed. Where have you been? How did you come back? Last night has been a night of wonders, she said. For mercy's sake, explain all you can. It was past two last night, she said, when I went to sleep as usual in my bed with my doors locked, that of the dressing room and that opening upon the gallery. My sleep was uninterrupted, and so far as I know, dreamless. But I woke just now on the sofa in the dressing room there, and I found the door between the rooms open, and the other door forced. How could all this have happened without my being wakened? It must have been accompanied with a great deal of noise, and I am particularly easily awakened. And how could I have been carried out of my bed without my sleep having been interrupted, I whom the slightest stir startles? By this time, Madame, Mademoiselle, my father, and a number of the servants were in the room. Carmilla was, of course, overwhelmed with inquiries, congratulations, and welcomes. She had but one story to tell and seemed the least able of all the party to suggest any way of accounting for what had happened. My father took a turn up and down the room, thinking. I saw Carmilla's eye follow him for a moment, with a sly, dark glance. When my father had sent the servants away, Mademoiselle having gone in search of a little bottle of valerian and smelling salts, and there being no one now in the room with Carmilla except my father, Madame, and myself— he came to her thoughtfully, took her hand very kindly, led her to the sofa, and sat down beside her. "'Will you forgive me, my dear, if I risk a conjecture and ask a question?' "'Who can have a better right?' she said. "'Ask what you please, and I will tell you everything. But my story is simply one of bewilderment and darkness. I know absolutely nothing. Put any question you please, but you know, of course—' the limitations Mamma has placed me under. Perfectly, my dear child, I need not approach the topics on which she desires our silence. Now, the marvel of last night consists in your having been removed from your bed and your room without being wakened, and this removal having occurred apparently while the windows were still secured and the two doors locked upon the inside. I will tell you my theory and ask you a question. Carmilla was leaning on her hand dejectedly. Madame and I were listening breathlessly. Now, my question is this. Have you ever been suspected of walking in your sleep? Never, since I was very young indeed. But you did walk in your sleep when you were young? Yes, I know I did. I have been told so often by my old nurse. My father smiled and nodded. Well... What has happened is this. You got up in your sleep, unlocked the door, not leaving the key as usual in the lock, but taking it out and locking it on the outside. You again took the key out and carried it away with you to some one of the five-and-twenty rooms on this floor, or perhaps upstairs or downstairs. There are so many rooms and closets, so much heavy furniture, and such accumulations of lumber that it would require a week to search this old house thoroughly. Do you see now what I mean? I do, but not all, she said. And how, Papa, do you account for her finding herself on the sofa in the dressing room, which we had searched so carefully? 
She came there after you had searched it, still in her sleep, and at last awoke spontaneously, and was as much surprised to find herself where she was as anyone else. I wish all mysteries were as easily and as innocently explained as yours, Carmilla, he said, laughing. And so we may congratulate ourselves on the certainty that the most natural explanation of the occurrence is one that involves no drugging, no tampering with locks, no burglars or poisoners or witches, nothing that need alarm Carmilla or anyone else for our safety. Carmilla was looking charmingly. Nothing could be more beautiful than her tints. Her beauty was, I think, enhanced by that graceful languor that was peculiar to her. I think my father was silently contrasting her looks with mine, for he said, I wish my poor Laura was looking more like herself, and he sighed. So our alarms were happily ended, and Carmilla restored to her friends. Thanks for being with us and for listening to All Things Eerie. For part four, visit the Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org. Original music for this podcast is by Dawn Northwind and was produced and recorded by Adam Dean. Art design is by Allison Price. NPL Studio Engineering is by Forrest Eagle, all of whom, with me, send their very best wishes to you for a very good night.